So the title of the sermon this afternoon is The Beatitudes Part 1. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you take a moment and turn with me to Matthew 5. We're going to be exploring verses 1 through 6 this afternoon. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 6. The ESV reads as follows. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so I guess the first question is, well, what are the Beatitudes? They are a series of sayings that Jesus gives his disciples right at the start of his ministry to them. They shape Jesus and they subsequently shape how the disciples see the world. They are declarational blessings by Jesus himself during his famous Sermon on the Mount, which means for us as believers here today, they need to be read, received, understood, and affirmed in a very positive, life-giving, transformational way that will bring application points to our lives. They ultimately, they help shape and convey the heart, the nature, and the assignment of Christ for every single believer. For us to fully embrace and give ourselves to the Beatitudes, we must avoid the first challenge, and that's to read them through the lens of legalism, condemnation, guilt, or shame. If we fail in our efforts to implement them into our hearts or our daily walk with Jesus because legalism has set in, then we will never embrace the heart of Jesus. And I pray together that as we go through this journey over the next few weeks, that our hearts will be softened by his grace, by the goodness of God that is accessible and available to each and every one of us as his children. And I pray that as we turn our hearts afresh to the Father in consecration, that we will become malleable, open to tangible transformation, not flickering moments of change in our hearts, but change that will produce something in the spiritual realm of the Beatitudes manifesting in our hearts and in our lives. Jesus takes time here. Uh, we're reading verses 1 through 6, and the other Beatitudes are in the verses that will follow next week. But he takes time to outline eight kingdom principles and values that will take us on a journey of growth, spiritual formation, and maturity in our walk with Christ. The word blessed is better translated supreme blessedness. Every one of the eight Beatitudes commence with the words blessed are. Blessed are. It's of equal value to every single thing that we need to establish in our lives. It, it calls us to be blessed supremely in every part of our lives. And so before we go through the first four Beatitudes this afternoon, I want us to be mindful of a number of considerations. Chiefly at the center is the context with which the Beatitudes actually appear. These words come right at the inception of Jesus' ministry. I mean, these are like the most profound words that he's about to speak. If you think about a president or a prime minister, it's usually the opening statement, the opening two or three sentences that they produce or speak that subsequently lays the foundation for everything they say afterwards. 
But let's be clear, Matthew 5, Jesus has barely started his ministry. But for context, Matthew 1 merely gives us a list of Jesus' ancestors. Matthew 2 describes the story of his life. Matthew 3 shows us how John the Baptist is preparing the way for the birth of Jesus. And Matthew 4 captures Jesus clearly beginning to call his disciples and fighting against the issues, the challenges, the darkness of the world. And so here we are at the start of Matthew 5. And a vast crowd have congregated. And you might think, why? I'll let you in on a little secret. Jesus at this point is starting to become famous. And so wherever there is fame, there will be crowds following. And so right there in the presence of this great crowd, Jesus goes to a mountainside. He gathers his disciples and he begins to teach them. I want you to take a moment this afternoon to picture that scene. Thousands of people, realistically, and yet he pulls aside just a handful of his disciples and he calls them up on a mountainside and begins to teach them. And I want to suggest this afternoon that what he's about to teach them are some of the most profound, life-giving and transformational words to emerge. But what is clear that even though the crowds were present, Jesus only speaks to his disciples. He only speaks to those who are truly deciding, decided sorry, in their hearts to follow him. So what he's about to say is not for everyone. If that were the case, he would have stood on his soapbox with a bright and boisterous attitude and began to speak and proclaim and preach, but he didn't. He took them away to a mountainside and sat down. So he was completely at peace. He was completely relaxed in their presence. A small gathering, intimate, a little like the group here this afternoon. There's something about that that's so rich and so tangible to us as we paint that picture, as we begin to understand Jesus' heart in what he's about to subsequently teach. I pray that our hearts give us a glimpse of heaven. Amen? As we go on this journey this afternoon. And that that joy that Jesus has in his heart would become our portion. So, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it forces a question, doesn't it? Well, who's the poor in spirit? Endless possibilities if we were to have a discussion about it. What does it actually mean to be poor in spirit? I think this, this actual verse mirrors Isaiah 61, where the verses, verse reads, a bigger pardon, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to all those who are bound. I mean, that will bring significant hope to every person that was in exile at that time. Their homes had been destroyed. They were left destitute, oppressed, in abject poverty. They were swimming in desperation and despondency. And yet, interestingly, Jesus uses the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be, not future tense. It's theirs is, which informs us this afternoon that the kingdom of heaven is available and accessible to every person that considers themselves spiritually barren, distant from God, aloof in their walk, in their relationship with God, orphan-spirited individuals, anyone that isn't at the center of God's will for their lives. They are the people that God prioritizes. Amen? And so whether that's you this afternoon watching online, in the building, whether it's a family member that you can think of, know this. 
the first group of people that Jesus references here. And so they are right at the vanguard of his heart and his desire to see come into the kingdom of God. Jesus has pretty clearly set his stall out here. The kingdom of heaven is for those poor in spirit. God is for them. And I want you to think about those in your life that you know are poor in spirit. The first thing they'll feel is condemnation, shame, guilt, oppression. I pray that you take time this afternoon, this evening, into next week to remind them that they are the first group of people that Jesus references in his ministry. They are his priority. And who were the poor in spirit those days? Lepers, beggars, poor people, anyone with any form of disability, any challenges of any kind, anyone that didn't line up at that moment with the Romans. And yet God's heart is for them. God's heart breaks for them. And let's be clear, friends, throughout history, the evidence is irrevocable. Right through history, we see time and again, groups of people being marginalized, whether it's their skin color, their race, their gender, various preferences that we may institute in our lives, we see time and again that history has a way of excluding people. And yet Jesus is very clear. Those are the people I want to reach. Those are the people I want to minister to them. You know, in that time, if, if you were a Jew, you were at the highest echelons of society. You were the creme de la creme, if you like. And if you were anyone other than that, you were in the lower sections of society. And yet with Jesus it's everyone is accessible. Everyone is available to enter the kingdom of God. And I pray that we would recognize that in our hearts today and that we would take time to remind those people that we know are not at the center of God's will for their life, to remind them that God does love them. And you know, sometimes even in church, I pray and I know that it's not the case in this church, but in church, we're quite good at excluding people as well. We don't have the greatest track record of welcoming people who are a little bit different to ourselves. We invite them to clean their act up first before they enter the building. And I think it's great. On, on occasions I have seen, it's, it's a while ago now, I've seen uh, people smoking cigarettes on the, on the balcony outside and I just politely ask them to finish their cigarette before they come into the building and sit down. But when I read this, the first thing that it reminded me of was of a story of a pastor in America and for the life of me I couldn't find it online, uh, the story. But he chose one day to dress up as a homeless person. I think the church was around 1,500 people. He dressed up as a homeless person. He didn't wash for a week, I think, in his story that he, he recalls and he tells. And he dresses up as a homeless person, old clothes, everything. So you can imagine what he looked like. And he told his congregation he was traveling somewhere else in America to preach. And, you know, the associate pastor preached that Sunday. And he turned up at his church, his own church, where he was the senior pastor. Horrendous experience for him. They marginalized him. They didn't want to help him. They didn't want to serve him. They didn't want to invite him in. He smelt. He didn't look well. And he was their pastor. The only thing that was different was his outward appearance. And it got me thinking a little bit. How do we treat people who are different to us, that might dress a little bit differently, that might speak a little bit differently, that might not conform to what we expect or assume that they would demonstrate in their lives. And I think the calling for us as a church is always to be molded into the shape of the kingdom, to become Christ-like. Jesus loved the marginalized. He loved those that were under oppression. He loved those that were on the uh, uh, outskirts of society. And I think that it means we have to examine what's ultimately in our heart. Do we automatically dismiss those 
who don't align or agree with us simply because they don't align and agree with us. That what Jesus would do this afternoon. I somehow doubt it. We invite people to come to church, but come to church and please be like me. No, come as you are. I spoke last week on Bartimaeus, and I love that story. And Bartimaeus was so clear. He was prepared to ignore everyone. He was prepared to press through. He was prepared to receive what he knew God had for him at all costs. And I pray that that becomes our heart as we go through the Beatitudes this afternoon, because that's what's on God's heart. And I don't know about you, but as a believer, I want what's on God's heart to become what's on my heart. Not my own agenda, not where I filter in or filter out what God calls me to do. I want to pick up my cross daily and follow him. I want to do exactly what he's called me to do, and that's to love those on the margins. And this leads us into the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, what do you think Jesus is referencing here? What are we going to be mourning over? Who are we going to be grieving about? Jesus doesn't even indicate to us who that people group is. And I think he does that deliberately. It's a little ambiguous ambiguity on our part to understand exactly who Jesus is referring to. And can we find joy in our moments of grief? If you think about the last time somebody close to you passed away, how did you feel? You grieved. You poured out your heart to the Father. You were unsure about what it actually meant in that moment. And I think there's internal grieving and I think there's external grieving. We will all have reasons to grieve and be sorrowful in our life. Death comes to all of us. It's where we stand in that moment that I think is ultimately relevant. And I know that this, this particular verse can trigger a lot of memories for us, painful memories of people that have passed away, of things that didn't happen the way that we wanted to, disappointments that re may re-emerge in our life. But how can we possibly choose as believers today to be blessed by God precisely when we're going through sorrow, precisely when we're going through pain? And yet Jesus' audience during that lifetime would have had a huge amount to contend with. Life would have been a lot harder for people back then than what we experience today. They would have lived in daily poverty, under oppression, violence, injustice. They would have lost people close to them the way that I'm sure we have. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. The reality is blessed are those would appeal and apply to probably the vast, vast majority of people. Think about a relationship that has broken down. Think about the health that you had that is maybe not as strong or as confident as it once was. Loved ones that we know have passed away. How can we see in this moment that there is joy? How can we see in this moment that it's actually a blessing to mourn? I think it's hard, but the answer actually emerges in the second half of that verse, for they will be comforted. There's an assurance, there's a guarantee, there's a promise to attain immediately after Jesus gives us the words, blessed are those who mourn. Now, be clear, Jesus went through everything that we have gone through in our lives. There's nothing that we've gone through that Jesus hasn't gone through. The only difference is the sin. And yet, God steps in and gives us the assurance 
the, the current suffering, whatever our trials, whatever our challenges, whatever the greatest thing in our life today that we could be mourning over is far outweighed by the eternal joy that we will attain when we get to heaven. Now, if you're wondering, well, you know, come on, Scott, you know, Jesus, you know, he went through everything but the sin. Well, he didn't really mourn over anything. The shortest verse in the scriptures, John 11:35. We know the story well. Jesus wept. He went through grief. He went through sorrow. He weeps with us. He is with you in your morning this afternoon. God is there at our lowest, hardest, toughest point. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the Alpha, the Omega. He is there in the present. He is there in the past, and he will be there in the future. And I pray that if you are in mourning for anything this afternoon, that you would be comforted knowing that God's word never returns void. It will always accomplish what it was set out to achieve. Receive the comfort, not just from the Holy Spirit, not just from the promises of God, but from fellow believers that can encourage and affirm you in your moments of distress and trial. Because if we assume that mourning or sorrow is a part and parcel of life here on this earth, how can we choose to be joyful in that moment? Well, it's about opening up our hearts to receive what God wants us to have. You know, we don't always get the answers to the prayers that we pray, the way that we want them. God doesn't do the things that we want when we want them. And sometimes we have fear that something will happen in our lives where the worst possible scenario may actually happen, and then it doesn't happen. And so we can be grateful to God that he always upholds us with his righteous right hand. He always protects us. He always sustains us. Do not think that if something goes wrong in your life that causes you to be in a place of grief or sorrow, that it's because you've not prayed hard enough or you're somehow spiritually deficient. Not at all. The Bible has so many examples of people who were faithful to God and yet went through great suffering. The obvious example is probably Paul with the thorn in the flesh. We know that story well, and yet he learned to live with it, which is a bit sobering for us because for some of us, it's dates and times, it's places and people, it's situations, and you recall exactly where you were when that tragedy struck or that problem happened or that person passed away. The reality is that some pain will never fully leave our lives. And we need to be conscious of that. Dare I say it, even reluctantly accept it. However, we can be comforted that we will always be comforted in our pain and in our sorrow. Ever heard the phrase, time is a great healer? What lies, what nonsense. Time at best softens the impact of the pain, but it won't necessarily extinguish it. And I think Paul captures these thoughts quite clearly in Romans 5. He declares that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character produces hope. Allow God to be part of your healing process today. This will undoubtedly help you develop a Christ-centered depth to your character. You will instill wisdom from heaven into your heart, and you will have an understanding of life here on earth that many ultimately seek but will not attain. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This verse is all about justice. 
Psalm 89 verse 14 tells us, justice and truth are the foundations of his throne. In the 21st century today, we often think that meek equals timid or weak. Wrong. That's not what it means here. We are not spineless Christians, amen? We are strong, confident, bold, and courageous believers. And yet Jesus tells us here very clearly, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit, future tense, the earth. And so we turn to Psalm 37 to get some understanding. We read the words there in Psalm 37, do not fret, don't be envious, trust in God, do good, commit everything to the Lord, wait patiently on God. These are just some of the words that the psalmist declares there. And he ends those descriptions by saying the meek will inherit the land. So meekness actually involves us demonstrating patience, burning pride in our lives, focusing on others, not ourselves, and ultimately trusting God. And so if we were to make our own translation this afternoon, we could say, well, really, uh, blessed are those who don't have pride. Blessed are those who meet the needs of others. Blessed are those who trust in God, for they will inherit the earth. And it seems that it only comes to the meek. It doesn't come to any other type of individual, any other type of Christian. So you have those Christians that are a bit brash, a bit aggressive, a bit bold, a bit too sure of themselves, dare I say it. There's no sense that they will inherit anything. It's those who are willingly prepared to put others first, those who are willingly prepared to serve and sacrifice, to put themselves last instead of forcing themselves to the front, those who are willing to be patient. We know in 1 Corinthians, the great portion of Scripture on love, love is first patient before it can be kind. It has to be patient. And so how are your patience levels in your walk with other believers today? How are you patient in demonstrating the love of God to everyone that you connect with today? Don't be the type of Christian that has a worldly mindset but calls himself a Christian by pursuing the things of the world with a worldly attitude. I want my own reward. I'm going to do it my way. It's going to be my way or the highway. No, 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 no. Blessed are the meek. What does that force us to think about or consider today? It forces us to become like Jesus. Jesus very rarely announced himself as turning up anywhere. He didn't present his titles or degrees or certificates of education. He just turned up. He was meek. He didn't drive a Rolls Royce. He didn't fly business class. Rode on a donkey. He walked, walked most places, days, weeks at a time meek, not just in his heart, but in how he presented himself and how he subsequently chose to live out his life. But it requires us, this verse requires us to stand up to injustice, to give a voice to those that can't give a voice to others and to themselves. It forces us to be kind, to be full of God's grace, to be generous to everyone that we encounter, irrespective of, quote, whether they deserve it. We do it as a Christian because it's what Jesus would do. Your heart today should yearn and break for those walking in oppression. I was on a, a call over lunch with some of the brothers I have the privilege of discipling. And one of the things that emerged in the conversation was that sense of conviction that has to be in a believer's heart. We're blessed, amen? 
We get to sit in a safe church building with wonderful preaching, right? There are people in parts of the world that would literally disappear off the face of the earth for having this in their possession. And yet they are living right for God. They're being meek. They're being humble. They're demonstrating the heart of God to every person they encounter because they have a deep conviction that this is the infallible word of God. And if it is the infallible word of God, then I've got to live that out. And so that's a a challenge for us today, to stand up for those that are walking in injustice, those that are oppressed, those that can't fight for themselves. We have to fight for them. Remember, Psalm 89, justice and truth, they're the only two qualities mentioned in Psalm 89, are the foundation of his throne. Everything else is built on justice and truth. And there's no 21st century, there's no, that's your truth, that's my truth. No, there is one truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? So let's not get caught up in the 21st century, well, what's right for you might not be right for me. No, 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 truth is truth. Stand up for injustice. We've got to become like Jesus. We've got to help people walk in the freedom of Christ that you and I have in the Western world today as a privilege and as a luxury. It's our responsibility. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So Jesus takes his thoughts a step forward after speaking about justice. He now calls his followers to be people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for change, for justice. And if you're looking for a definition, it's someone who loves God with their complete self, heart, soul, and strength, who demonstrates that by keeping God's commandments and extends that love to other people. We hear so often, don't we, you know, the only Bible that most non-Christians will pick up is your story. And so it forces a question, what are we communicating? Who are we communicating? Because God has called us to hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. A righteous believer will always submit their will to be in complete rightness with the will of God, which means we've got to want to want what God wants us to have. The greatest prayer you can pray as a Christian, and the most dangerous prayer that you can pray as a Christian, Lord, your kingdom come, and Lord, your will be done. But so often we cry out for that, and we proclaim that, and we declare that, until we start to see God's will. And then we kind of take a little bit of a step away. Yeah, okay, I wanted God's will, but let's filter some stuff out. No, no, no. We either have all of God's will for our life or we have none of it. Why do you think Abraham picked up all his stuff in Genesis 12? He was told, pick up all your stuff and leave because he knew he wasn't coming back. So you have to take everything with you, which means he was all in. Why? Because Abraham knew that there was no joy outside of God's will for his life. Are you all in with Christ? Are you genuinely hungering and thirsting after righteousness sake? Or is it just a fleeting, flimsy thought that we have on occasions? Because we have to deny ourselves. It's tough, right? Our natural default is for safety, security, my needs met first, and then I'll start meeting the needs of others. The challenge attached to that is that we will only ever meet our own needs, that we will never attempt to meet the needs of others. Our desire has to be 
that we surrender our lives afresh to God, that we allow the maker of heaven and earth to form and shape our mind, our heart, our life, our destiny, and the will that he has. As a result of us yielding to that meekness, humility, we become more like him, which means our hearts will long for the thing that is on his heart, and that's hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. There's a consequence attached to it, because if we don't hunger and thirst, then there's, no, there's an indication that we won't be satisfied. Don't know about you, ever gone to those really, really nice restaurants, and the, the bowl or the, the plate is huge. It's like, and then the food is like just this thing in the middle. And it's like, okay, you're going to have to bring two or three of those because I'm quite hungry. It's awkward, right? We would always want to eat food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner to a point that we are full or certainly satisfied. You would never eat half a bowl of Cheerios. Well, you'd never eat half a bowl of Cheerios. You'd always eat a full bowl. But you would never eat half a bowl of Cheerios and then go, oh, that's enough, even though your stomach is still hungry. And so why would we take that approach in our Christian walk? We have to learn to hunger and thirst. It has to become the forefront of our lives. It's insufficient to give it a moment here or a moment there. The 72 hours of prayer and fasting is amazing. Get behind it. But I pray that you wouldn't need our senior leader, Pastor Colin, to encourage or invoke that in our spiritual walk. That this would be an augmentation of what you are already carrying out in your own life. Remember the greatest prayer a Christian can pray is, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing here at KT to build the kingdom of God? Did we build during lockdown? Or did we just go through maintenance mode? Will we continue to build post-lockdown? Because as we are being hungry and thirsty for that kingdom, you will face the challenges that are attached to that. The moment you step out for God, the enemy will step in. And they will attempt, he will attempt to disarm, distract, and satisfy you with fleeting things that the world has to offer. Your decision right there and then is, am I going to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Luke 18, verse 7. Unfortunately, fortunately actually, but I say unfortunately deliberately, completely captures this thought for us. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones, those who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Let that verse be the backbone of your focus and your thinking tonight. When did you last cry out night and day about justice, about the kingdom of God. It's not a question that I hope would bring any sense of condemnation, but perspective, reflection, examination. And I pray that it would fire you up as we come out of lockdown and as we emerge into a new season of growth and maturity and training and development into the autumn, that this would act as a springboard that would lead us forward in our journey. Why? Because God is alive, God is active, and God is working his kingdom right here and right now. Whether we accept it or not is largely irrelevant. He is at work. This is not a time for us to be a passive church as a body of believers. We've got to get fired up and actively engage with the vision of the house, building the kingdom with an innate desire in our hearts to see people come into the family of God. That is our job description. 
Our job is to become Christ-like, to become obsessed with the kingdom of God. And I use that word very, very deliberately. I can't take the credit, but someone once told me many, many years ago, obsessed is a word used by the lazy to describe the dedicated. Sobering thought for us this afternoon. Are we obsessed with the kingdom of God, or have we allowed apathy, lethargy, to creep into our daily walk that erodes our focus, that diminishes our impact, that substitutes from what God wants to do in and through our lives? You know, this, there's no such thing as the new normal. You know, God doesn't have a plan B for our lives. There's plan A, period. And we have to get behind plan A. And that is our call today. And so what is God showing us in our community today as a body of believers? What are we truly standing for? And who are we actually representing? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 tells us we are Christ's ambassadors. Do you know what an ambassador does? He represents a country abroad. So there's an ambassador for Britain that would go to France, China, America. They represent us. Everything about how they're dressed, how they walk, how they stand, how they shake their hand, everything rehearsed because they want to demonstrate and put on the best display that they possibly can. So they, how they sit, how they carry their cutlery, when, hold their cutlery when they're having dinner, everything is rehearsed, stress-tested, checked, verified. You are an ambassador for Christ. And if you want to demonstrate that to the best of your ability, start by demonstrating these four Beatitudes that we've explored this afternoon. There is nothing that we can do to attempt to earn God's love for our lives. It is all by his grace. And it's his grace that he's ultimately pouring out here in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Here's a sobering thought. Our sole contribution to our own salvation was our sin. That was our total sum of our contribution. And yet it's his grace that propels us forward, the grace that covers that sin, the grace that forces, facilitates, fuels, and projects us into a glorious future, both here on this earth and eternally. And I pray that as we embark on this journey over the next few weeks, as we explore these Beatitudes more and more, that you would capture something of the heart of Jesus for your life, for my life, and more importantly, for the lives of those that don't yet know Jesus. Blessed are, in Jesus' name, amen and amen.